Welcome to episode 10. So today we're talking to Shirley Dessar. Shirley is a haematologist and clinical lead for the UCLH Centre for Wardenstones and Associated Disorders. Shirley will be taking us through what Wardenstones is and about plasma cell disorders in general and treatments that are available. So this is the last podcast in our first season of Bolus and we hope you've enjoyed listening to them. So Gavin, what's been your favourite podcast in this season? Oh, um, I think probably my favourite has been John Porter talking about thalassemia. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it was brilliant. Not only because it was a disease I didn't like fully understand before, but also because there's quite a happy ending to it because, you know, we're getting to the point now where they're, they're actually finding a cure or a potential cure after decades of pretty much just supportive treatment, which is really exciting that that's just on the, the cusp. Yeah, that was very good. Very interesting talking about hereditary disorders and where they originate in the world and things. I found that very interesting too. And Sarah, what, what, what was your, one of your highlights? Um, mine changes. So I really, really enjoyed the lymphoma talk with Will, but love Marie Scully's TTP podcast. So I keep going back and listening to them, which is great because I'm still really interested in it. But it does change. What's yours? Well, I feel like we've mentioned four now, so I'm going to have to mention the other six. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, otherwise pretty much, that. yeah. I liked Emma's. Emma Morris is fantastic. Um, obviously, Emma um, supported us with the pilot episode. Yeah. Um, so she was the very first one in a very dodgy room with a lot of noise. Was that when we just had the one mic that we passed around between yes. us? <laughs> yeah. So I think, as everybody knows, as the episodes go on, it we're hoping that the sound is getting better. We've got a few extra bits of equipment that Gavin has uh, got hold of. <laughs> Put on Gavin. Makes it sound like I stole them. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Shirley, for joining us. Do you think we could take it back to the basics of the biology of what B cells, plasma cells, and immunoglobulin do in a healthy individual? So B cells are one of the lymphocyte types that we have in our bodies. They have a distinctive function, which is to help to fight infections and also to provide surveillance against cancers. They go through a pathway of development that leads eventually to a plasma cell, which is a sort of the end of the differentiation. So it, there's nowhere else to go for that. And it's the plasma cells that give rise to antibody production. And that is why in diseases like myeloma and Waldenstrom's, which we'll come along to in a bit, you get this antibody production, the immunoglobulin, the monoclonal immunoglobulin or M-protein or paraproteins, different terms for the same word. Usually we produce a whole range of B-cells in response to all the infections that we come across throughout our lives. They give rise to an antibody which then remains, well that, that whole system remains dormant until we see that infection again, in which case the, if you like, the army can be deployed once more and off, you know, to, to treat that infection. Now what happens with, we're not exactly sure why plasma cell disorders arise, but we presume that there is some form of immune stimulation, some sort of virus, bacteria, we have no idea, maybe even a modern particle around the place, you know, that we inhale so many things nowadays, or eat or whatever. So our bodies possibly produce an immune reaction, but instead of it peaking and coming down to undetectable levels and staying in the background, it lingers. And these cells give themselves away by producing a small level of protein, which is what we can find on this protein electrophoresis test, which picks up a so-called band or M-band, monoclonal band. And over time, those can gradually accumulate depending on the disease type. 
um, those antibodies and the accumulation of cells in the bone marrow or in lymph nodes can lead to disease states, of which there are quite a few. The thing about plasma cell diseases is there are a number of spectra in which they exist. So one is the spectrum of B-cell development, which starts as a very young cell. If that gets malignant, that's when you get an acute B-cell leukemia. And then as they migrate along, you can get malignancy developing at each point. And when you have fairly mature or getting to mature B-cells, you may develop diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And then even maturer cells, you can get chronic lymphocytic leukemia, follicular lymphoma. And if that continues along its normal pathway and the malignant disease happens at the next point, you'll have a mixture of lymphocytes and plasma cells, so-called lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma, which is where the Waldenstrom's disease arises. And it's around the time of this switch in disease, in B-cell development, that antibodies begin to be produced. And the first antibody that's always produced is the IgM. And it's only once you get something called isotype switching that you produce IgG or IgA, and that's a really full-blown plasma cell entity. So that's one spectrum. The other spectrum is then when you look at plasma cell disorders is to do with the amount of plasma cells or lymphoid cells that are present. So at one end of the spectrum, you get what are called monoclonal gammopathies of uncertain significance, where you have a very low level of disease, maybe up to 10% of the marrow, sometimes even less detectable than that. But there's a small level of paraprotein. And the natural history of that is to gradually accumulate over time. Now, for many, many people, it doesn't accumulate or cause any problems. So if you think about it, about 3% of people over 70 have a monoclonal gammopathy. Okay. So it's pretty common. Uh, and it's only a small proportion who go on to develop an accumulation of cells, which then give rise to the different kind of plasma cell entities that may happen. So that's the first thing to remember. If you find someone who has MGUS, they may just become worried well people because mm -hmm. they just have this protein, the doctor finds it and, and you have to say to them, you have something that is possibly pre-malignant and may not do anything. But then the other... And we won't really see those patients, will we, on the yeah. ward? I don't think we I wouldn't. can... We wouldn't, no. So the ones who... You can see one uh, patient with that admitted MGUS. You wouldn't know. The only exception to that is if... So sometimes you can have MGUS-type disease, but because the antibody is quite nasty and mischievous, say it targets a particular cell type, okay. so like the nerves, you can get, if you have an antibody that's specific for certain nerve antigens, such as so-called MAG, which is like the insulation of the nerve wire, if that starts getting damaged by an antibody, then you can get a neuropathy. And some people get some really prominent progressive neuropathies that can lead to significant disability. So they can be in the MGUS category. Right. I guess I always thought of the, so the protein as being not inert, but something that kind of in its volume, in its sort of scale, it sort mm. of, you know, it's de it deposits and then causes problems. But it's actually some of the antibodies can actually be attacking and essentially autoimmune. Exactly. Right. So okay. it can target self tissues erroneously. Other sort of set tissues that can be targeted are red cells causing hemolytic anemias. ITP can result from these kind of antibody targetings. And you can get some bits of the antibody deposited in tissues in the form of amyloid. Okay, yeah. So we do see quite a lot of amyloid on our wards nowadays. These are all properties of these antibodies, these monoclonal proteins, which don't necessarily relate to just a, a huge accumulation of them. So one has to think quite laterally about these diseases sometimes. So it's sometimes quality and not quantity that counts. 
But I would say for the most part, we would see patients who have accumulated a fair burden of disease, lymphoma or plasma cells. Those people often have higher levels of antibodies, but not always. I, when I say antibodies, I mean the monoclonal antibody. Mm -hmm. In such patients, if we think about normal antibodies, they're usually suppressed, relatively speaking. It's almost as if the immune system is so distracted and focused on producing the monoclonal antibody, it almost like forgets to produce the normal antibodies. So people often have, with people with myeloma, Waldenstrom's, they often have, they're quite immunosuppressed because of their disease. Even if they don't have low white cell counts, you know, they just have a, their B cells are not working so well. And that's an important thing to remember because we have to be very careful from the get-go with these patients in terms of treating infections. Uh, and not just neutropenic sepsis type infections, but viral infections, they get risk, at risk of shingles and, you know, hepatic problems, cold sores and so on. And a number of opportunistic infections as well. And when we treat them, that can get worse before it gets better, you know. So, so there are many challenges. And I guess the other group, which we see more and more of in our centre, is, is POEM syndrome. Mm. Now, POEMS is a quirky disease where the, it's almost always a lambda light chain paraprotein, like 99% of lambda. We don't know why that is. But in that situation, what happens is, that, well, the exact mechanism of damage in POEMS is not fully understood. But one of the main prominent problems is a neuropathy. And they get an inflammatory neuropathy, which is not completely understood why, but it seems that there is a series of cytokines being produced, chemicals in the bloodstream coming from the immune system that cause blood vessels to become very leaky. And those leaky vessels create havoc for patients' tissues. So that is possibly the way they get nerve damage. So it's at a very microscopic level. Right. They also get really marked edema, many of these patients. The lining of the lungs can become leaky, so they can develop pulmonary edema, they get ascites. So this is like a chronic picture of a sort of a cytokine, just high levels of cytokines. Correct. Now, the, the kind of cytokine that we think of and use as a tool is called VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor. And that is something that's typically very raised in POEMS patients. And we use it to measure response to treatment and so on. But ultimately, because the, the culprit in POEMS is the plasma cell, we do treat it like we would treat myeloma you know, taking account of a few other things. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, in terms of poems, it stands for things. So P is polyneuropathy, O is organomegaly, E is endocrinopathy. In other words, problems with the endocrine glands, such as thyroid, adrenal, the gonads, the pituitary. M is the M protein. S is skin changes. But there's a whole range of other multi-system problems that really make this a challenging disease. And it's often very late in being diagnosed as well because it comes through all kinds of different pathways and because it's very rare, yeah. people don't sort of think, ah, this is poems, you know. So it's pattern recognition. But the treatment is pretty much along the lines of myeloma with exceptions. So we use stem cell transplants for people who have these plasma cells present in different parts of the body, such as bone marrow or different bone lesions. If someone has one bone lesion, then we can use radiotherapy to treat them. But, you know, they are, they're sort of like myeloma, but with other challenges, because they often have poor mobility, they're edematous, they're prothrombotic, and they're often younger than patients with myeloma, okay. often previously fine, suddenly bang. What would be the sort of time scale for deterioration? It can vary quite a lot. I mean, a few patients deteriorate over the, a matter of months. Right. They develop pins and needles in their feet, tingling, numbness, 
they may go to their doctor who obviously doesn't really know at that stage because there are so many causes of neuropathies, hundreds actually. But as it gets progressive, it goes up the limbs, starts at the feet. They begin to feel the symptoms more and more. First of all, short socks, long socks. Sometimes pain is very prominent. By the time it reaches the knees, you begin to get finger symptoms in the hands because that's it's called length dependent. So that's the, it reaches the length of the arm. Right. Same kind of things. The problem is that they get really, the distal aspects of the limbs get really quite useless. So they become quickly very dependent on people for help. You know, we've had patients who can't feed themselves. But proximally, shoulders, thighs, they're not too bad. But they get foot drop and they can quickly go from walking to sticks, to crutches, to chairs, to bed. And at what point might they be diagnosed? It so depends on who they see. Yeah. That's the problem. So we are on a bit of a campaign to try and get practitioners to recognize the disease, do certain critical tests if they have, say, a neuropathy, a paraprotein, and edema, say. It's like, do a VEGF. The thing about VEGF is it's not really available very widely. So with rare diseases, it's actually quite difficult to spread the word. And many patients have made their own diagnosis by the time we see them in our joint clinic. Really? Because they've done a lot of surfing on the net because they're getting worse and worse. And, you know, sometimes they're misdiagnosed as having uh, another inflammatory neuropathy. Sometimes they get treatments for those neuropathies, which are not much help. And they then get progressively immunosuppressed. But the good thing about poems is if it's recognized and treated promptly, you know, there's so much room for maneuver and improvement. But it takes time. It takes one to two years before the nerves can improve significantly. So we have to take a very long-term view with these patients and give them hope. Many of them are really very down. You know, they're working, they've got families. Suddenly they can't function, they're very dependent. Change their lives in every way. So we generally would see them and we have a joint clinic. We see them with the neurologists, the endocrinologists. We try and look after all their needs going forwards. For example, if they have a very low testosterone, they may need testosterone replacement because low testosterone cause fatigue. It's, so it's a very multi, it's very interesting because it's not just heme. Yeah. There are a lot of other aspects which contribute to the patient's well-being or, or otherwise. So that, I mean, that is an illustration of how rogue plasma cells can really impact on the body in such a range of ways. And at the center of it all, because it's a plasma cell type problem, we, we look after them as hematologists by and large and give them anti-plasma cell type of treatments. So that's the kind of spectra we're looking at, you know, spectra of B-cell development, spectra of B-cell accumulation in the body, and then the range of treatments or presentations and treatments that people need as a result. I've always been curious, are plasma cell disorders harder to treat because they are a more mature cell, they are sort of fully committed? Does that make it more difficult than treating a disorder of an immature precursor to B-cell or plasma cell? Yeah, very. I mean, that's actually a very astute way of putting it. it that is that is correct. So chemotherapy, traditional chemotherapy cytotoxics, they capitalize on the fact that cells are turning over very rapidly because they have DNA damaging agents one way or the other. So if you have someone with, say, acute leukemia, you've got, of course, huge cell turnover there, very, very rapid. Now, the thing about leukemia is, is they have there are problems of their own. I mean, it's not that just because they turn over rapidly, we can cure all of them. But if we go a little bit further down the maturation line to, say, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and Hodgkin lymphoma, these diseases, for some reason, are quite amenable, susceptible to chemotherapy treatments, and they potentially are curable. But once you go to the more indolent chronic diseases like follicular lymphoma, the chronic lymphocytic leukemia, Waldenstrom's and myeloma, 
you've got a much lower turnover of cells. It's often as if, it's almost as if they, rather than reproducing fast, they sort of die less. So chemotherapy can knock those diseases back, but you can't get rid of every last cell. So by and large, these are incurable diseases, which is a big issue for patients to get to terms with. The fact that they have to live with the disease for many, many years. The good news is, for example, rituximab in the lymphomas is just a massive development. It's I wouldn't say it's led to many cures, but it's helped to really prolong progression-free survival in these patients. So that's a great development. There are a huge range of other treatments coming through, particularly in the plasma cell department, uh, compartment. I mean, Velcade and lenalidomide and pomalid, these are relatively old drugs now, actually. There are many more drugs coming online, and these work less on... I mean, there's a good analogy, which is the seed in the soil. If you if you think of chemotherapy as like a weed killer or, or a, you know, it kills the seed directly, it works to some extent in these diseases, but diseases like myeloma need a lot of input from the microenvironment, the soil. So a lot of the uh, newer therapies cut that off and they cut off the supply that they get and they undermine the disease that way. I guess the ideal treatment is a combination, perhaps, of chemotherapy, monoclonal antibodies, targeted therapies, uh, and that's the direction of travel. So, for example, in Waldenstrom's, we use BTK inhibitors, which such as ibrutinib. Those inhibitors interrupt the crosstalk between the nucleus of the B cell and the cytoplasm. There are a whole range of proteins that sort of signal to one another. Because in the end, the cell is not isolated. The whole job of an immune cell is to communicate with surroundings, to coordinate with T cells, to figure things out. So they get a signal, they get a receptor triggered, they send a signal down to the um, nucleus. The nucleus then produces RNA, proteins are produced, and that actually causes the cell to work. So by cutting off these, uh, some of these signaling pathways, it really undermines the cell, and, and they can die off, basically. So it's a different way of treating because usually people who have these kind of therapies stay on them long term. You know, it's not like chemo for an X number of cycles. So it's actually a really exciting time in that way because we can treat diseases, in, a, in even incurable diseases, over many, many more years so that they become chronic diseases and people live with them, almost like diabetes or hypertension. The only downside is our clinics become massive. It's, it's, it's a success story because yes. people come back, you know, they're not frankly dying from these diseases as much. So we see them more and more and more and that leads to challenges. It also leads to new challenges for multiply treated patients because we have to learn as we go how these new treatments cause, what sort of problems they cause. That must be very difficult to unpick Extremely down the line hard. if someone were to, I don't know, have some organ dysfunction or, I don't know, right. secondary cancer. You know, then, sudden, I mean, sometimes, what would the cause be if they've had four lines of treatment? And that's exactly right. So, you know, these sort of patients do end up on the wards because we have to manage them very acutely. Some are very well. Some, I mean, someone else, I'm sure we'll talk about CAR-T, but, you know, some of those therapies can create huge illnesses and, and acute problems. But it's a, it is a new world. And I think, I guess what happens with the inpatients is that we see it's a collection of those who are struggling the most. And that is why, you know, the, the service at UCLH is, it's a tough one to work in because in many ways it's sort of cutting edge because we're learning about these new therapies. Many patients have had lots of treatments. Their immune systems are far removed from what they should be. We kind of have to keep up with this whole problem in terms of infections, the unexpected happens more and more. And mm. I think that's one of the problems in managing these patients. Um, 
more so than ever before. I think we all got used to chemotherapy. It's been around for decades and decades. You know, there were variations on a theme and their toxicities for one and not the other. But some of these targeted therapies are just completely left field stuff. I guess some of the chemotherapies will not only be used in a hematological patient, they could be used in oncology. So you've got more data you can pull from to kind of look at the impact. That's right, Yeah. yeah. No, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a good world to be in, but uh, I think um, the, it's more complex than ever before, that's for sure. So Waldenstrom's is treated as a sort of a plasma cell disorder, but it kind of has this lymphocyte side to it. Can you explain a bit more what the, what's kind of happening in, in these patients? Yeah, so that's a moot point. I mean, I think my background was in myeloma, and I branched off into Waldenstrom's. And <clears throat> I think the thing that sets aside Waldenstrom's from other lymphomas is basically the fact that there's this IgM. And I think most lymphoma, what I call dry lymphomas, which are DLBCL folliculars, no IgMs or any of that nonsense, the management of those lymphomas is the missing IgM in some way simplifies them. Uh, I think the presence of the IgM and all its spin-offs adds several layers to the care of WM patients because of the kind of problems they face that are relatively unique. The IgM itself, if it accumulates too much, you can get hyperviscosity. Mm-hmm. So if we think about the blood viscosity, so if the viscosity of water is 1, blood, whole blood viscosity has a, is about 2.2. And if you take the cells away, plasma is about up to 1.7 because there are proteins. But when you have a rising IgM, to begin with, it's a fairly linear relationship between the IgM and the viscosity. But there comes a point, perhaps around 30 or 40 grams per liter, where suddenly the viscosity shoots off, becomes exponential. We normally produce a small amount of IgM, maybe up to two grams. So you can imagine if your clone is producing 40, 50 grams. The thing about IgM as well is that it circulates in fives, pentamers. So it's a huge molecule in the end. And so it doesn't take too much for that to sludge up the circulation. So that has different effects on different people depending on their age and their blood vessels. So a good analogy, I think, is if you have a a really old central heating system, which is really quite furred up, If you put water through it, it'll kind of manage. But if you put oil through it, there are two problems going on. You know, the thickness of the liquid as well as the the sludged up system. So the same with with, with blood vessels. If you have an elderly patient who has stiff vessels and a fair amount of cholesterol deposit on them, etc., it doesn't take too much for a thickened blood to cause problems. The circulation is sluggish. They can get breathless. They can get problems when they walk because they can't supply their feet. They can then get hemorrhages behind the eye. There's a risk of bleeding, they get nosebleeds. A younger patient can tolerate the same level much more easily because their vessels are in good, good shape. So the end result of hyperviscosity depends on both these factors. But if it's present, it is an emergency and the, the treatment for that is plasma exchange. So we do have a fair number of patients who are brought in from elsewhere because of this problem. Uh, so that's the kind of physical presence of the IgM which can really rock it up and cause a problem. It usually does it very slowly, to be honest, but there comes a point where suddenly it all gets too much and the the patient becomes symptomatic. And I think it causes a bit of anxiety with uh, a newly diagnosed leukemic patient with a high white cell count. Mm. It's easy to visualize the blood results and say, okay, this patient, I probably shouldn't give them a blood transfusion, for example. Yeah. But there's not really any sort of easy way to know unless you get handed over that a patient is at risk of hyperviscosity mm. with a plasma cell patient. Is that, would that be fair that is, to say? I think that is fair. There's less, I suppose... Blood tests are uh, interpreted by everyone in our departments, which is which is great. I mean, I know the nursing staff act on them all the time, which is not the case in many hospitals, so that's really good. 
I think plasma protein is a bit more complicated. And to be honest, even doctors who are not familiar with them struggle, uh, even at consultant level, registrar, the whole works, you know. So I guess the key thing is to remember is IgM is the most likely to be the one that causes hyperviscosity, followed by IgA in the setting of myeloma. And the reason is that IgM circulates as fives and IgA as twos. So it circulates in pairs. So these are relatively big sort of molecules. So if, if the number of them goes up, it's more likely to cause thickness. On the other hand, an IgG myeloma can go quite high before they get viscosity problems. So, there, so that's something that one has to sort of think about. It's something one has to liaise very closely with the plasma cell team about if, there's un, if one is unsure about that. Like, Definitely edit that like, out. Edit, yeah. <laughs> it's just all red on the screen there. There's actually, there's a trial at the moment for patients with myeloma and CAR T cells. Is that something you think might be applicable to other patients with plasma cell disorders? Or is that, that going to be a limited approach? I think in time. I mean, the, the uh, Waldenstrom's is quite low down the list of diagnoses in which it's going likely to be tried or the trials are going to happen in. I think there's a little bit of activity in the US and someone said in China, they've been doing some as well. I think the reason for that is that people usually focus their attention on A, it's a more chronic disease. B, it generally affects older patients. So a lot of these more adventurous therapies, they're more toxic. And yeah. by definition, some patients are, are not really in the, in, the, you know, in the frame. It's a rarer disease. So trials in rarer diseases, there's fewer of them. I think they may be applicable in the future, but I, my view is probably the more high-risk diseases is where the attention is focused at the moment. What sort of treatments do you think are kind of coming or have recently sort of come out that you think might be heading in the right direction? Yep, so taking Waldenstrom's, I mean, it's mainly the BTK inhibitors at the moment. So Ibrutinib is the first one. We're doing trials of another one called acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib. So they're all BTK inhibitors which have slightly different specificities in terms of targeting. We don't know yet whether one's better than the other. But as a group, they are well tolerated. They're pretty good at lowering the IgM quite quickly and bringing up the hemoglobin and making people feel a lot better. We don't know yet. It's early days about what you know, long-term follow-up will show us. And that's one of the reasons I'm not that enthusiastic about bringing it in for my, the younger patients. I actually counsel them to stick with the chemo that we know more about and perhaps wait for more data to come through on these kind of drugs because they are, you have to be on them long term. Then there are the other novel agents which are being used in other diseases like venetoclax, proteasome inhibitors like Velc uh, bortezomib, uh, ixazomib. They have been used and tried in Waldenstrom's. Unfortunately, we, we don't really have access to those as yet. I think, again, another problem with rare diseases is by the time the NHS gets around to funding them, we lobby quite hard. We have a charity called WMUK, which is a doctor-patient charity, which works on these sort of things. Try and so, for example, we got a brutinib onto the Cancer Drugs Fund by linking up with Janssen, the company that makes it, and, and setting up a, a registry that we run to populate WM patients across the UK. We have a kind of um, a doctors group. We have annual patient meetings actually for usually about 100 and 150 patients come with their families to hear about it. In fact, you know, if anyone was free on a, a Saturday, they're very welcome to join. You know, it's okay. it's actually really interesting. And patients with rare disease actually get to meet one another, which they find very comforting as well, because yeah. they often feel very much alone. It seems a bit of a struggle sometimes, but we're seeking to get a look into these newer therapies. I mean, the other thing is, is autologous stem cell transplants. We do use those in some patients too. They tend to be conditioned with beam or lean rather than the myeloma sort of conditioning therapy.
And the idea of that is to not to cure the patient, unfortunately, but to try and give a remission that lasts a very long time. Got some really long survivors come to clinic who had have had transplant seven, eight, nine, ten, even beyond years ago, and are still in remission. With any treatment or not, no further not, treatments? Wow. Since. Yeah. I mean, others have progressed, and we've had sure. a few on the wards in the in recent years. Younger patients with rather belligerent disease, let's say, who've then transformed because that's another risk of Waldenstrom's. You can transform to DLBCL. Now that can you can get back from that by giving things like our CHOP chemotherapy or stem cell transplant. But some people have just not done very well. It's been notable that we've lost a few patients like that. So it's not an entire. It's not like a completely benign disease or anything. Then there's another group that we haven't really talked about yet, which is the Bing-Neal syndrome patients. We've had a few more of those recently. So that is when Waldenstrom cells go into the central nervous system. Uh, so it's CNS lymphoma, but not like the diffuse large B-cell CNS lymphoma, which is a lot more aggressive and has a much poorer prognosis. So Bing-Neal is, again, a slow-onset disease. And one of the problems that contributes to making the diagnosis is it just depends what it's affecting as to what the symptoms are. So there's often a delayed diagnosis, and you have to make it by, A, you need to suspect it, you have to do MRI scans, CSF. Then you have to find the context of Waldenstrom's. But we've had about 30 patients in this hospital, you know, and, and more arriving, who we've treated successfully with some of the DLBCL regimens. Sometimes we use a brutinib. We're trying to forge a way of how best to manage these patients. So is that something like Matrix, or would that be CHOP? So no, we use CNS like a, direct the CNS, therapy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so we've used Matrix, but we've been discussing with our colleagues like Kate Sinaski, you know, is Matrix over the top? Maybe it's too toxic for these patients. So we've sometimes used abbreviated matrix, like two cycles, and then give them some rituximab as consolidation or switch to a brutinib if they haven't had enough of a response. But we've had some notable cases recently. One lady presented with frank psychosis, and she was in and out of our wards here. And it was a very difficult time because obviously we don't really have psychiatric uh, experience on the ward. That's just a manifestation of the part of the brain that was affected in her case, you know. So she needed that managed. Some, some people get fits. Some present actually with neuropathies and mobility problems. Some have like lesions in their spinal cord, which have caused tetraparesis. So it is very varied. But the good news is that we have a neurohematology service here, which in, in which I do joint clinics with neuropathy specialists at Queen Square, both for poems and these Bing Neils and others. So we can try and zero in and, and, and really, I guess, develop a, a sort of a, a guideline practice for others Basically, as we see a lot of it, we, we try and translate that experience into some sort of um, algorithm, really. So you'll be receiving quite a few referrals because of this specialism then, I guess. We get we'll, a lot. And we'll see more Absolutely. patients with it. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that that is important because it means that we, you know, patients have different needs to what we're used to. You know, rehabilitation needs. There are mobility issues which our staff are less familiar with, you know, principles are the same but if someone's in bed for a very long period of time you know when do you bring physio in and you know I think the physios do a great job but there's not really enough of them <laughs> to go around when there are neuromuscular issues going on as well yeah so, so it kind of needs maybe a, a change in approach and a sort of a whole pathway yeah, doesn't it absolutely yeah. it's evolving for sure that's a, a great amount I think we've covered a lot so thank you so much no worries pleasure